0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 180, air date October 11th, 2017. All right, thank you for having me. Uh, can everyone hear us okay? Yes. Sir. So um, it's an honor to be here. I know there's an incredible amount of work that gets done here in a breadth of areas um, I, I, was, uh, I was shared with earlier. But I really want to focus on um, what I call in-silico modeling, particularly mechanistic modeling. And, and then we'll talk a little bit about how you would approach the bone network problem. Um, the agenda I want to do is I want to give a little bit of background um, to follow up, really sort of hone in on what systems biology is. How many people have heard the term here? Systems biology? OK, so about half people. Um, and then come down to in-silico modeling. And really discuss what that is. You know, there's two ways of modeling the phenomenological world. One is you can look at the world as input output and do data correlation, you know, correlate output to input. Typically, methods called multi level nonlinear regression, which is what machine learning in the world of statistics is about. But then there's the other part of modeling, which we look at mechanistic modeling, which is a much harder problem to solve. And in biology, people have stayed away from that because of the scale issues across temporal scales and spatial scales, and the fact there's so much domain specificity. And that's really the problem that we've sort of cracked the code on. And then I'm going to share with you the approach that we've taken on the mechanistic side through some uh, very interesting case studies. And then I'm going to sort of lay out how we would approach the bone network problem. Um, so our mission you know, at Cytosol, we've taken out a, a pretty bold mission, is to really revolutionize health at a very fundamental level not only in the development of therapeutics, but also in the development of this whole emerging area, of what people call nutraceuticals. You know, there's a lot of supplements out there. That if you go to, I assume there's Whole Foods out here, right? If you go to the nutritional aisle of Whole Foods, probably 80% of that product products may be snake oil. But um, more and more Americans are starting to use these products. And also in the area of functional foods, um, major corporations, and you see there's a merger now taking place in what they're calling foods or P-H-O-O-D-S, between pharmaceuticals and foods, what they're calling functional foods. It's gonna be around a $280 billion business. But the notion is where you're leveraging the precision of manufacturing practices that pharmaceutical companies can do with the notion that people actually are looking for functional foods. Um, But that's sort of, our goal was, as you start looking at the, you know, where we are, what's gonna happen is, people are getting more and more aware, the average patient, uh, my sister is an MD and she says her patients come in with more knowledge because they're Googling stuff uh, when they come to see her. So we have this breadth of tremendous amount of research knowledge that's out there and we need to in fact go beyond Google to be able to <coughs> distilling that so we can make it valuable. And that's what Cytosol's really done. But just from a background standpoint, if you look at this slide up here, this is sort of the development process that it takes to develop a, a synthetic or, or, or a compound. Uh, in the various stages. Uh, so in the early stage when a compound is discovered um, you have to go through this process of doing in vitro screening. Uh, typically if you're an entrepreneur and you've discovered a compound you'll go to a venture capital and you raise 20 or 30 million dollars and that'll fund the process of doing in vitro screening and potentially some animal testing. Um, that process, those first three boxes there take about anywhere between five to six years and then once you've succeeded, hopefully, in that phase after uh, going through some animals and doing you know, toxicology, then you get the opportunity to file what's called an IND, you know, the FDA IND, Investigational New Drug Process. And if you're successful through that, you get allowance for that, then you go through phase one, phase two, phase three. Now the numbers, the recent numbers from Price Waterhouse, you know, say that the numbers, you know, to do the, from end to end can be upwards of five billion, you know, 13 years. Um, so if you think about this, if you, have patent life start at t equals zero when you discover that compound and it takes let's say upwards of 13 or 15 years to do this you essentially have five years left to recoup on your patent and no one discusses any of this really gets into it in in all the debates we have on healthcare right we talk about Obamacare repealing it or whatever doing that but no one talks about the fact that there is a development process here that's frankly archaic. Most of the CEOs of large drug uh, companies are aware of this and I think you're going to see a lot of the major pharma companies in fact go out of business and they talk about this, which is an unsaid discussion that takes place in boardrooms. But this process is an old process, you know the elephant sort of lumbers along, uh, but it has some serious problems because it's not personalized, uh, it's not precise, uh, it was designed for a single molecule to take it down through that process. So, um, and if you think about airplane development and engineering, it's, it's in many ways the way we build drugs is the way we used to build airplanes about a hundred years ago. You came up with a design, you threw a pilot in, and if he failed, you said, "Gee whiz," and if he succeeded, then you, in a very intelligent way, uh, started talking about mechanistically why it worked. It's rationalized drug development. It's not really rational drug development. you shoot a bunch of buckshot up there, something falls out and then you sort of try to explain it. And in my view, the reason that this takes place is because there, uh, there's a reductionist approach to, approach to biology itself that the elephant represents you know some very complex uh, disease, you know osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, you know, go down the list. Um, you know, this is the old story that uh, Buddha tells when he brings in the king, where the king brings in six blind men, and each person's touching different parts of the elephant, and each person, in their own view, thinks they know what they're seeing. So the the, you know, the guy's touching the tail thinks he's touching, uh, he's feeling a brush. The guy who's touching the tusk thinks it's a spear. Um, and the problem is, because biology is extremely focused on, which it needs to be, Right? In some ways, biology needs to be reductionist, because you need people to understand the parts. Um, but the incentive is not to put the parts together, and if they did, in some ways you'd end up with something like this. It's um, not meant to be, it's sort of facetious, but the reality is an engineering systems approach doesn't exist in biology. It's not incentivized. You can win a Nobel Prize for understanding how two proteins interact, right? And that's where the incentive is um there's not fundamentally an incentive to collaborate and it's a non-holistic approach so when i started looking at this i felt that you, you, we needed a revolution in this field and um without hyperbole and i, I felt i had a little bit of experience in this is as, um as, as you just shared you know i've been doing medical research believe it or not since i was a 14 year old kid i was one of those overachievers By the time I was 14, I'd gone to NYU to study computer science in 78 and started working full-time at Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. And at that time, I had access to some of the best uh, contiguous sleep data where we were trying to, you know, use more big data approaches to correlate sleep patterns of babies with the onset of apnea. Um, So, you know, I I dabbled at an early stage in medical research, but more importantly, I started to learn how to build large-scale computational systems. Um, the invention of the email was in many ways like that. Anyone over the age of 40 here, I assume, uh, some people, um, everyone will remember the old inner office mail system. You probably still have it here, right? And that was how in the 70s and 80s, people collaborated, at least in this medical institution. You know, the secretary was always the uh, person who controlled the desktop. Um, by the way, for anyone under the age of 40, there was a thing called the desktop, the physical desktop. And it was, uh, you had the inbox, the outbox, you had folders. Uh, the secretary had a physical thing called a typewriter, you'd write up a memo and that memo was very structured to, from, subject, you had a carbon copy which was literally carbon paper and it was a very arduous process but this is how collaboration took place. If you were doing a grant proposal you'd write a cover letter, you'd attach a proposal, you'd forward it around and you'd put it through these uh, pneumatic tubes. Some of you may remember this. Um, This was sort of the ethernet before the ethernet. Um, And this is how collaboration took place. And as a kid, I was asked to convert this entire system. Now remember, there were methods for the exchange of simple text messages. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the whole system. And I converted that to the electronic version, called it email, wrote 50,000 lines of code. It was not an obvious term in 1978. The only reason I called it email was the scientific programming language of the time, Fortran, allowed six characters for variable naming and the HP operating system only around five. By the way, this is in the Smithsonian now and it caused quite a bit of hullabaloo when it went into the Smithsonian because people couldn't believe a 14-year-old kid did it in Newark, right? If it didn't occur at MIT, it didn't take place. Um, But anyway, uh, but I learned a lot uh, on how to create large-scale systems. Just a side note, you know, it's an interesting thing how policymakers also don't keep up with technology in those days. They thought that software was cheap music, right? So the laws that were for protecting software in those days was copyright, which was amended in 1980 to let you use copyright to protect, actually, software. It was only 1994 did the Federal Court of Appeals recognize software as a digital machine. Um, Oops. Um, So the point is, I'm not a gazillionaire, because uh, you don't uh, get royalties on software, because uh, copyright copyright doesn't protect ideas, right? It's unfortunate. But anyway, learned a lot about building large-scale systems. Um, As went in and out of MIT, (coughs) over multiple years taught there, and in 2003, uh, an interesting development was taking place in in the field of biology. some of you may know that one of the things that was occurring was around the early, mid-90s, we started the Human Genome Project. Everyone remember this, right? And the interesting thing was in multiple spatial scales and in biology, it's in fact even a little more complex than even like fluid dynamics or other engineering problems because you also have domain specificity, right? You have the domain knowledge that, uh, that's also layered in uh, and you don't have any a priori laws as we have in engineering. In engineering we have ab initio laws, you know F equals MA, you get to do a lot with that. Uh, We don't have laws in biology as of yet. Um, So around 2003, the National Science Foundation also put forward a grand challenge, and the idea was could you mathematically model the whole cell? And it's a very interesting problem. At MIT, um, and this is sort of one way of looking at it, essentially, if you think about the cell as a big refinery of many different reactions taking place and the notion is that you're starting to want to understand all the uh, mechanisms that are involved. Now at MIT the chairman of our department in 2003 was leaving this field because when it came to doing mechanistic models you were able to get to maybe around 20 or 50 species and it got way too complex. And so the computer science guys came in and they said, well, forget about understanding the mechanisms, we'll just treat this like a black box, which what they had done in AI for many years, you know, vision problems, um, other areas, handwriting recognition, and we'll just treat it as an input and an output and we'll use correlation techniques. So that's where the field of big data exists today or bioinformatics. The problem with most of that is you can intuit where where something is happening or events are taking place but you don't know mechanisms and all of us in this room know that if we're going to really solve some of the bigger problems we need to integrate mechanisms we need to understand mechanisms so when I started looking at this from sort of a very uh, diverse or weird background that I had I started recognizing that this is really not a biology problem in fact it's not even a computer science problem it's actually an engineering systems problem meaning or a distributed engineering systems problem any part of this diagram Um, Again, as I mentioned, people could win major awards just by understanding any one of these people spend lifetimes on any part of this. But if you start thinking about any part of this, diagram being owned by different research groups, potentially uh, uh, distributed all over the world, and people may spend many uh, uh, millions of man-hours understanding any component, you start recognizing what we really need to do is create a methodology where we can allow people to own pieces of this. Compute pieces of this in their local ways and then integrate it. In many ways, what I call a collaboratory. And by the way, just to level set what I mean, this is what I call a biological pathway or molecular pathway. It's these you know, ball and stick diagrams. And biology still t- today is still taught in a diagrammatic way. Right? You can take a biology class or biochem class, you learn, you know, these diagrams. But over the last 10 years, these diagrams <coughs> Because of high throughput imaging, are becoming mathematical models, albeit small. And I'm sure if there are graduate students here, you may use MATLAB, you may use different programs. Um, but you're building these models. The interesting thing is these models are in many, many different formats. People try to do standards, uh, people write them in Fort. They're still using Fortran or MATLAB or CellML. So you have more and more models coming up, and there's various repositories uh, appearing you know, uh, throughout the world right now. So the issue becomes really how do you start integrating systems of models recognizing that any one of those models, so if you take everyone in this room each person in this room as a part of some lab may be owning models which they're working on, graduate students come and go the issue really becomes how do you integrate this together in a cohesive way knowing that there's always change taking place. Now in engineering one of the big things this brings up is what's called change management. Because in biology, things are changing every day. New discoveries are being made. So the added problem is you need to be able to have an environment where people can contribute. The changes are also percolating up. So the systems approach we took was we said, OK, if the blue circle here abstractly represents some complex phenomenon, um, it, you know, and uh, we know that phenomena consists of many different pathways, those ball and stick diagrams, uh, varying sizes. And the notion is these pathways may be owned by different research groups who may be modeling them, you know, uh, advancing them, uh, and these things are changing. Wouldn't it be uh, great if we could create an orchestra conductor or or, or a coupler in the cloud which could manage all these models and couple them together while you let the individual models be owned and maintained by others? Because, you you know, people are uh, experts in certain areas. So that evolved into cytosol what you see here is uh, i don't want to go into too much details but we can have models all over the world or consolidate if people want to have them in one space um, and there's a mechanism where these models can be invoked and coupled on the fly what that means is you can compute individual sections on the fly but integrate them together and that's what cytosol became so email in many ways was the electronic version of the inner office communication system Cytosol is essentially an infrastructure for the molecular communication system across temporal and spatial scales. Um, so, we, you know, obviously we, we had to publish 2003 to 7. Uh, that was the basis of my PhD. Uh, we, we, we published one of the early papers really talking about how to do this integration. But one of the things we realized was that what we had really done was create something that could significantly change that entire drug development process, which means We know when you do clinical research, you know, right here uh, at at the VA here within your institute, there's data coming out, but there's also papers out there. You go to PubMed, you know, there's tons of papers out there. The idea to mine these papers, not just for data, but to mine them for those ball and stick diagrams and other systems. And then Cytosol can help essentially orchestrate and, and put them together in what I'll show you, what we call an engineering systems architecture. And this now can be used to test not only com- a single compound, but compounds. Obviously, more and more research is indicating a single compound for any disease is not going to cut it. We have to be able to combine compounds while also taking into account uh, you know, variability in genetics, what people are now calling precision medicine, the right medicine at the right time for the right person. Um, and notice here, in vitro and, uh, and, and humans, uh, with human cells, is an adjunct to this, it's not the core, as it was in the older diagram. And by the way, uh, this is how we do engineering, right? There's um, no airplane that we, you know, kill a bunch of chimps, um, and we kill humans, right? We do it on a computer, um, and then we do a necessary amount of wind tunnel testing, and it it goes through this. But in biology, this was thought to be too complicated to do, and I think that's what we code on. Um, So the process we take is a little bit hard to read, (coughs) Uh, I'll read it for you, but the first step for any problem we have the ability to do now is we can do problem identification, we do the literature review, which means we use a bunch of machine learning techniques to get the literature, uh, plus with human oversight, and then the next part is we identify the key mechanisms from the known literature. So we're all obviously bound from the known science, but um, one of the important things is we're not going to take data just from one institution because someone there wants to own the narrative on how things are taking place. Unfortunately, in academic science, that's what tends to occur. So if someone, one person wants to own the narrative on a particular field, they can, they can do that in those papers, but we don't do that. So uh, after this is done, we literally create what we call a systems architecture, as you would do in engineering based on the known science. And I'll show you some examples of that. Then we do unit testing on the individual models, based on the extent in vitro and in vivo work and then we do integrative testing to build a computational architecture of that knowing that we are limited by the current research and knowing that there is uncertainty but at least we've created a framework for doing this. Um, So uh, so what, what we really call this is a collaboratory. So what I mean by that is in any area, so let's say we wanted a really advanced bone network research, right? We would find experts in the field, but they may have their own repository of data, for example, certain foundations, and we mine this and take it through this process, and this creates simulation data, which the research community can invoke, um, and either this is consistent with what they're seeing in the wet lab, it's inconsistent, in which case they can share with us why it's inconsistent versus just simply hand-waving, or it may reveal new types of uh, data that may uh, give them new hypotheses for doing research in a much more cogent way. So let me give you some. Uh, uh, so w- what we've done now, you know, so between 2003 and 7, we built the core. Between 2007 uh, and 12, we published a lot, and between 12, 2012 and now, we actually started commercializing this. So. We have Pharma and Biotech clients, you know, be it uh, Pfizer or Island, <coughs> like We uh, work with major universities. Believe it or not, universities are outsourcing research to us, meaning, because they're finding we can do the work for 40 or 50 graduate students. Um, uh, we also have functional food companies, companies which are making those vitamins and et cetera, who want to, some of them <coughs> want to be ahead of the curve and recognize that this kind of technology could cause disruption. Uh, foundations and obviously the um, government organizations so the uses of this are quite extraordinary we uh, couldn't even have predicted a lot of this from combination therapies I'll share with you from biomarker discovery uh, target validation uh, obviously toxicity analysis Um, so let me show you an example here Uh, so I'm going to walk you through Remember, there's sort of these six steps I'm going to walk you through an example of using the first three steps this is an interesting example. I was giving a talk uh, to my, uh, Michael Milken, uh, the billionaire who's now involved in a lot of nonprofit health research and organized uh, around 25 neuroscientists to really look at neurovascular diseases. Um, among them were people who obviously were looking at TBI, you know, traumatic brain injury. And one of the areas here was um, uh, how do you understand the, the range of stuff that's going on in neurovascular diseases. And I gave a talk very similar to this, saying, you know, in neuroscience, people are not collaborating. And one of the researchers there at USC, uh, Barislav Zilkovich, who heads up the Zilka Neurological Institute, he goes, Shiva, this is really great what you're doing. You know, we want to collaborate. And the interesting thing in uh, neurovascular disease, um, some of you in this room, what I'm showing you is a, is a lateral view and a cross-sectional view of the blood-brain barrier. And it turns out... Um, that more and more data showing that many of the neurovascular diseases, ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, etc., may have a the the causation may be 25 years before the onset of that disease and it has to do with destruction to the blood-brain barrier. So what you're seeing here, here is the artery, here's the endothelial right here in the tan and then these are called parasite, parasites which are a control valve which literally allows blood flow from Uh, the artery into the the brain and then removes whatever you know uh, toxins out but the destruction to the blood-brain barrier over time causes a range of uh, issues so uh, Betsa as he's known was very interested in understanding the real mechanisms of this so you have really uh, three components here this is the endothelial parasites and the astrocytes so in our first step we literally you know uh, looked at the literature And what we found was these are sort of a summary of the ball-and-stick diagrams out there um, on the endothelial itself. So behind this is probably several thousand papers. And every line and every circle here has been curated. So that's the endothelial as as an engineering component. The other is the parasites here, which are also connected to this. And again, behind this, we've organized and curated all the literature. And then finally, there's the parasites which communicate with the astrocytes here. But one of the interesting things that we looked at was we said, okay, so that's all interesting, but can we look at this from an engineering systems approach? Any software engineering people in the room here? Anyone build software? Okay, so when you develop software or when you build a building, uh, from an engineering standpoint, you typically have different layers. So you typically have, you know, if you're constructing a building the foundation, in software we call it the data layer. The next layer you build above that is called the application layer you know in a building it's the electric the electrical and the plumbing systems etc and then you have the user interface what, what the the individual sees uh, or in a building it's the interior design right so from an engineering systems approach we have these three layers here so we said okay if you take the anatomical structures of the endothelial the parasites and the astrocytes here's the endothelial and by the way in here are the about 13 different subsystems of uh, 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 different molecular subsystems, each one of which, some of them are domains unto themselves, which are well characterized <laughs> in the literature. So we characterize that here. <coughs> Over here is the parasites, which has again around 12 subsystems, and the astrocytes around four. So in this, what we call the NVU neurovascular unit systems layer, you have these characterized based on the known literature. Remember, as new literature comes, we can update this. In the next layer here, what you would call in the engineering, software engineering, you would call the application layer, or your plumbing area, we have between the endothelial and the parasites, it appears there's six major uh, subsystems, which are communication mechanisms up here from PDGP, the uh, pathway, the notch pathways, et cetera. And over here, there are two between the parasites and the, um, uh, and the astrocytes. So, by the way, all of this, every line, every <coughs> circle here goes to literature. So we're not making any of this up, which comes from, you know, uh, millions of man-hours of wet lab uh, in vitro and in vivo research. Over here, we've sort of characterized all the different diseases that you find in the literature, be it hypoxia, you know, ALS, etc. And what you start noticing here is many of these diseases which we characterized. As individual diseases actually share common communication failures so for example ALS and AD share common failure in the PDGF beta pathway here now when we submitted this to Nature neuroscience half the reviewers loved it and the other half said this is garbage there's no word like engineering systems architecture what is you know we've never heard of these terms this is bogus Um, so we had to write back a 20 page you know response educating the editors hey there is You know, there's a whole field called engineering systems theory, and we've employed that. The good news is this was finally accepted in nature. It's got a lot of citations, but the reason I'm sharing that with you is we, from an engineering perspective, went into a whole new field where we were not the experts in. And I think we made a significant contribution, but it's a completely different way of looking at neurovascular diseases in a holistic way where it starts looking beyond disease. It starts, and what's fascinating is, you find when you look at this diagram, see, I don't like to look at things as disease. You start seeing what, okay, there's certain components which are shared across diseases. And in fact, there's components as we're finding, as we're building our models that we can reuse. And it sort of makes evolutionary sense, right? In nature, you know, nature is probably very conservative, started with certain components, and then created various instances of it based on evolutionary needs. So there's not, it's a different approach to looking at this versus a disease-based approach, starting to look at it as molecular systems-based approaches. So so this is a process when I discuss the bones stuff, this is the opportunity to really look at the literature, understand what's out there, but organize it from an engineering systems perspective. The next example I'm gonna show you is where we went beyond just the, you know, doing the pretty diagrams and, you know, doing the architecture to actually starting to do the mathematical modeling. Because one of the questions that comes up in something like this is, people start saying, hey, is it going to be garbage in, garbage out? Can you actually model something which matches wet lab results? You know, I don't really believe this is possible. It's too complicated. So this this, uh, uh, effort really answers that it is possible to do this. This was an effort we did between MIT, Brigham, um, Harvard Medical School, and King's College. And the question here was, nitric oxide flow in arteries in, in, uh, you know, across the endothelial. Um, as you know, um, when you have sheer flow of blood over the endothelial, that there's actually a release of nitric oxide. And um, one of our guys in our lab, Andrew Koo, who's doing his PhD, was, had literally meticulously taken a lot of time at Brigham to literally set up the wet lab where here's an artery, for example, and as blood flows through, Andrew can manipulate the shear flow. And over here, what you see here is, here's the endothelial, and there's a very interesting structure here called the glycocalyx. You heard of this? Um, for, for years, there was a lot of controversy whether the glycocalyx even existed. Um, it's, it's clear it does, but <coughs> when blood flows over this, the glycocalyx, that tree-like structure, is actually a mechanotransducer. Uh, as this moves, it innervates chemical reactions through a whole series of cascaded pathways which um, uh, you know upregulate uh, NO. So Andrew, from the uh, mechanistic standpoint, could manipulate different shear flow, and he could see different amounts of NO. But he really wanted to understand the detail mechanisms, which I think we would all want to. But when you go to the literature, you see like the elephant's um, narratives, there's many different uh, ball and stick diagram storybooks on this, right? Um, some people attribute it just to calcium influx, others to ENOS expression, and like this, there are many of these different subsystems. So, what we did, and now to put all of this together, there's about 130 tools which you could put it, you could end up with a pretty diagram, but it's not, it's intractable to actually do the modeling. And more importantly, new proteins can be found. How do you manage the change management? So, what we did was we uh, we said, let's use Cytosol here. Let's keep the calcium influx as its own component, model it, validate it, et cetera. You know, understand uh, to the best of our knowledge, create the best model there, et cetera. And all those four or five, in fact, there were more. And then we integrated them together, and the results are quite impressive. And what I'm gonna share with you is, this is Cytosol's predictions. It's not a curve fit. This is Cytosol's mechanistic predictions of Enos mRNA concentration over time and this is Andrew's actual wet lab experiments. So it's quite impressive, it's not a curve fit but behind this line we understand the mechanisms that are involved and same here. Um, this is actually for the uh, uh, protein concentration. And the, the reason this is important is because it, it lays to rest what people may say or naysayers may say he can't really do this it's too complicated. The reality is we can do this. That biology can be constructed around engineering principles. Obviously, you know we have to understand that there, there is uncertainty, as there is in building a building or any of these structures. Um, but we can, with a tool like this, we can actually start understanding where the <coughs> uncertainties are, where we may even need to do more research. And this was, by the way, published in uh, Cells by a Physical Journal. Um, the next one that I wanna share with you is, um, how are we doing on time, are we okay? Yes. Okay. Um, just want to make sure. Um, the uh, so, so that that gives an example of what we can do from a standpoint of going uh, end to end. You know, from the, the mechanistic validation. You know, making sure that the model actually descri- and the integrated model actually gives us what we see. The, the other example I'm going to show you is actually in industry. People say, "Well, those are interesting academic experiences. Can we actually do something in actually pharmaceutical development? Uh, There's a very interesting company in Cambridge called Alnylam, they're a $12 billion company started by Philip Sharp, um, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for silencing RNAIs. Um, What they do is they actually try to do knockouts of mRNAs before they even upregulate, let's say, a a, a protein that could be harmful. One of the areas that we got interested in, again, this is not a major disease called hereditary angioedema, which is actually a, a... um, it's a horrible rare disease and when we met them they had actually uh, found a target in mouse and uh, they were about to move to clinical trials but they were quite diffident and this is by the way a, a very common scene in pharmaceutical development people do in vitro and they do in vivo but they're really not sure because they don't really understand mechanisms um, and so they had not filed their inD and and because they weren't Sure, because the results that they were getting for this target was counterintuitive to what else was reported in the literature. So when we started working on this, in about 45 days, they weren't even sure if there was enough literature out there. We mined the known literature, and I can't share with you the the bigger details of the architecture, but at a high level, contact activation leads to uh, the metabolism of this protein, bradykinin, which affects edema. And in the next around 90 to 100 days, we literally had enough data to do the modeling. And what you're seeing here, here's the target. And this blue line for the Bradykinin protein represents cytosol's modeling. Now behind that blue line very much, as I shared with you in the previous uh, set of slides, is the whole mechanisms of of how this uh, works. And then here, after we did this, they shared us their mouse data. So it's quite remarkably fitting. Unlike their mouse data, which they don't really know the mechanisms, behind that blue line we have all the a mechanistic understanding. And, and same here with, with the affiliated protein. What was really great about this, again, this is just a, and I'm sharing this with you to let you know that this is prime time, we can start using this. That they were very kind to release this press release, which you can't get anything better saying that their in vivo study confirms our in silico predictions, and it accelerated them going to clinical trials. And this is what you really want. Um, the other one I want to uh, share with you, and, and as, a, as I want to bring up the bone problem, is uh, where we actually started eating our own dog food. <laughs> Let me explain this. Um, uh, so everyone familiar with multi-combination therapies, not a single drug, but you want to use combination. This paper came out in Nature about a couple years ago and it was, saying, it was written by a guy called Paul Waxman, one of the leaders in cancer therapy. Um, we don't know any of the authors, by the way, but what was interesting about the paper was it was saying if we're going to really solve cancer, we, st- we need to use combination therapy. And the, and the paper brought out the fact that this is not an easy problem because to do this, you have to start worrying about different factorial, right? The, the factorial uh, problem gets quite large and you have various dosaging, and it was saying you really need to start using computing for this. So this was an example of where the direct use of computing could really help on the clinical setting. And what's fascinating was we don't know these guys, so there's not an inside job here. Cytosol was the only uh, uh, platform cited uh, because we had published in in, in other papers that could actually support mechanistic modeling. So we said, this is interesting. Why don't we actually do this? Um, So we went and raised a little bit of money and what we did was we said, why don't we take on uh, pancreatic cancer? Um, but before that, we did a little test problem. By the way, if you go to India, I grew up in India, where my grandmother is one of the village healers. Um, I don't know if you know, India itself has a, its own traditional system of medicine. They have their own diagnose diagnostic methods, and believe it or not, it's an early form of precision medicine in the sense that you would get um, uh, one person here would not get the same treatment as someone else based on your particular biology people got different treatments. so these guys would be mixing these compounds but if you ask these guys how they mix them you get it in a language that makes us think it's just you know which you know which, uh, which doctor medicine so one of the interesting things that came out of the Indian research in spices is there's a very interesting um, uh, uh, product called uh, curcumin everyone heard of this turmeric everyone had Indian food here what turns out, the, uh, an epidemiological study about 15, 20 years ago, when they looked at all of Asia, meaning India, China as part of Asia, Indians tend to have one-third less liver disease. Liver disease is the number one cause of death in Asia. And it was, it was, it was purported, or, or not purported, but the correlation of the data showed that the high consumption of turmeric, active to be curcumin, was what was uh, was a reason behind this, And this has been, by the way, repeated in Singapore, which is a microcosm of Asia. Um so what we did was we took curcumin and we looked there's about six thousand papers. you can go on PubMed, and we mapped out every pathway. What you're seeing here is the outer cell wall, here's a new inner cell wall. And these are all the molecular species that are affected, that are involved uh, in the in- inflammatory pathways for curcumin effects. And we modeled it. You know we ran curcumin through and we were able to validate it from in vitro in vivo experiments then we looked at resveratrol again everyone has heard about the hearsay uh, from grapes and we modeled that um, and then we said if you go to whole foods by the way you'll see these supplements which put these in combination and if you ask the people how did you come up with these combinations everyone says well my grandmother told me you know a lot of hand waving but we said could we actually do in silico experiments with cytosol And this is sort of a fun example. Here, the last column here, we're simulating an inflammatory cytokine, which is at 0.15. I'm not giving any curcumin any resveratrol. This is control. Then I just give curcumin here, and you notice it drops. I just give resveratrol. It drops similarly. But this is what we call the synergistic effect. Everyone talks about it, where I've reduced this by 40%. Curcumin reduces by 60%, but you get about a 200% drop in And this is why in India, for example, when you ate curry, it's not just one, uh, it's not just turmeric, it's a mixture. And the notion is that the synergistic mixture of these compounds has a much more beneficial effect than any one. So anyway, I wanted to give you this as a background. So we took the same approach when we wanted to do pancreatic cancer. So what we did was we literally mined the literature and we modeled um, all the uh, mechanisms that we could find, because in cancer therapy, it's a two part approach. Uh, what people do is they literally um, want to upregulate apoptosis. So, behind this are all the mechanisms as we can find from the known literature on apoptosis, and you want to downregulate cell proliferation. In pancreatic cancer, the gold standard drug is gemcitabine, uh, and it doesn't work that well. So, what we did was we modeled all of this, then uh, we went through the 262 known cancer drugs that are out there. And of that we identified 13 which were actually viable individually. And then if you work this out, there's around 10 million combinations. It's a lot, right? All the different dosaging. In silica, we identified around 70, uh, that 78 that were viable. Five we optimized. And then one we actually found performed quite well. And we filed our IND. We were about a seven person company at the time. Uh, Three months into it, we got a call from the FDA. and We thought they were upset with us or something. They said, you know what you guys are doing, by the way, we don't normally make these calls, but what you guys are doing is what Janet Woodcock wants to do in the 23rd century. And they gave us our allowance. And what we've done is we've taken our mathematical models now, and then we went to MD Anderson, which is one of the leading cancer clinics, and we've done a joint venture with them. So the models plus their capabilities for clinical t- uh, testing and in vivo work are being now combined to build a platform for combination therapy. In fact, we've done this now in six other ventures. Similarly, with uh, a leading researcher, at Mass General in uh, Alzheimer's, uh, the VA uh, down in, uh, uh, in Florida, in prostate cancer, et cetera. Because what we're seeing is, this is a disruptive technology. We can build models, and because the models have such a universal value, they can then be you can do ventures with clinical research organizations because that's not our expertise Um, so let me uh so so i hope this gives you a feel everyone got it so there's you take an engineering systems approach you leverage the literature you mine these ball and stick diagrams keep them uh in their own domain specific areas because they're changing build system architectures and then start using that modeling so let's look at um in this context i'm just going to sort of go through um, these slides, are but by the way, these were the data that we, we actually submitted in silico data in our FDA filing, and the FDA is actually moving to a model where they actually want to start recognizing models. By the way, that was done on 11 months end to end, from uh, in silico to filing the IND and getting approval. So if we start uh, looking at this from a uh, Bone, uh, where we can't, in about, probably about several months, we're publishing a series of papers for some of the work we're doing with UHN up in uh, Toronto, where we've been given a very interesting uh, opportunity, a uh, grant to literally model the knee uh, and, and at various scales and various molecular systems. But here, if we look at the bone at a very high level, we know that there's bone marrow cells and vasculature, and then we know that there's the bone cells themselves. That's a very high level architecture. For in us approaching something like this, the first step, as I shared with you in the example uh, I showed with the neuroscience example, with the with the uh, blood-brain barrier, yeah. one of the first approaches we would do is, for for example, this microvascular and the marrow cells, we would literally start identifying all the different subcomponents from the known literature and organizing that into a systems architecture. Now, in order to do this, we cannot do this by ourselves. So you know, if we wanted to do a project, um, you know, with, with the leading researchers here, we would. Uh, when we do our projects, we typically mine the literature, we get existing data, we bring domain experts in, we take a first pass at what that architecture should look like. People give us input, and it's an iterative process. But in that process, very much like the neurovascular example, we start wanting to hone in on a system's architecture of this. Um, and obviously understanding, and then similarly with the bone cells, we would look at all the four major cells here and start organizing them. But within each one of these, we would build architectures and the communication links among them. Um, in, in our example, just to give you an idea how we would approach this, you know, the, the architecture typically takes us around five months, which is quite fast. It's not, you know, years. And by the way, this is done using computing but it's also done using some machine learning, but it's also done using domain expertise. We typically, when we do this, we'll open it up in the cloud, you know, conference calls, people come in and they give us feedback. Um, But this is a process that we do to build the architecture. Once this is done, then we actually do the modeling of the individual components um, as we find them, unit test them as we would do in engineering if you had a motherboard on a computer. And then you actually go and then you integrate them this may lead to new results that may not even exist in the literature some of them may and others may invoke us to do new research Um, so i'll give you an example of of what this looks like when we do an architecture in this case this is something we did in another area called neuromyelitis optica where we have three major structures here the cns the blood-brain barrier and the periphery with bone you know we probably have two or three major structures These are all the different cell structures and all the different upstream and downstream components of this. Once we've done this, we would literally take different components and then literally model those. And so here's an example. We've taken this component here. This is literally what's in the literature, and this is Cytosol's actual results. So what this lets us do is, as we're building out the components of the architecture, we can start understanding, okay, this is working reasonably well. The mechanisms are in check, and if they're not, uh, but remember, this is not statistics where it's a black box. We can actually open up the hood and see what the mechanisms are. If there's certain mechanisms we don't understand, that may require the need to do further testing, or we may make certain guesses if we want. Similarly, we go component by component. So in this example, we did the next component. Here's the literature. And by the way, every time we do this validation, we curate and we save the literature. So if anyone ever wanted to say, well, where did you get that? Show show us what the differences are. You know, Because sometimes rate constants vary in vitro versus in vivo. Uh, Equilibrium conditions vary. So we save all of that. Uh, So we're literally doing the mechanistic in silico and leveraging the in vivo and in vitro work that have been done all over the world. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that we're able to treat that as an architecture and then leverage the, the, the work that's been done to validate a test. And at the end of it, what you end up with is, I'm sorry, I want to go, to, you end up with, a, with, a, with an integrated architecture, which then can be used for further testing. But I think what I want to say with you in closing, when you look at the, it's, it's a complex enough system that this engineering approach, I think is extremely well suited for it. And what's even more interesting is, as you're going down this approach, we can actually figure out what's working, what isn't, and what are, what are the components that we know very, very little about that we know those are areas of uncertainty. In the interest of time, I'm going to stop here and take some questions and answers. Thank you. I've
1: got two questions. Um, for the simulations, you show, you showed just single curves, is there stochastic variability there, and um, and, and if so, I mean, do, do you do multiple simulations and you're getting the same curve every time, or yeah, great what question. is the
0: variability there? Yes, so then I, I have th- a
1: second question.
0: Yeah, so, so uh, we always, so we do what's called sensitivity analysis, right? So the question that you're asking is an interesting one, right? so if you have a set of species interacting, Um, You know, A interacting with B to give some product, right? The important thing is they're what they call the rate constants. And there's a lot of uncertainty here because based on how those in vitro and in vivo experiments were done, under what conditions, you can have an order of magnitude difference in those rate constants. So one of the things we do is we know, you know, from when we step back at a meta level, hey, you know, this reaction should take about two hours, three, that's known. So when we uh, when we do a model and we're testing it, we do sensitivity analysis where we'll vary ranges of that model and to see if those shapes of those curves, you know, as we're not behind that single curve. We'll typically do sensitivity analysis. and We'll get a range of curves to see uh, if it's uh, if there's any hysteresis or if there's any major dis- discontinuities, and that lets us give an understanding of maybe this rate constant is wrong or the uncertainty in that 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 occurs almost at that unit testing level but we do i guess
1: my only response to that then are you trying to fit what exists yeah. you know what i mean i mean yeah 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 so, so let's say th- a priori you have no right you don't want to go in with that bias you know right so so, so how do you know which curve is correct in that case yes
0: yeah, so, so it's a great question so so, there, remember, remember I said one way people do this is they literally take an input-output and they just do math, right, statistics. Here the difference here is we actually are looking at mechanisms, the molecular mechanisms. Um, and what's different about this is that you can actually make, you can reason as a biologist, you're not worrying, you're not using a statistician or an AI guy, you're actually using a biologist so we know that at, at, as you go down to certain mechanisms there are well understood mechanisms and you know hey you know this portion of this engineering system is pretty well understood over here there's uncertainty so it's not perfect but the advantage is you're not just looking at a black box like if you were to do this with neural networks you have no idea what you're looking at the biologist can't even give any feedback except to say well that curve looks right or wrong Here, when we know something's not right or wrong, we can actually open the hood and we can say, you know what, that mechanism is probably, we don't understand it well enough. And so we have to maybe assume it could be this kind of mechanism, a lump system, or this. And the interesting thing you can do with this is you can actually do different types of hypotheses. We've done this where one lab will say, you know, the mechanism is like this, and another lab will say the mechanism is like a different mechanism. And we can actually plug and play those and then go look at the in vitro data, in vivo data, to understand what's actually going on. But I think the fundamental difference, to your point, is we're trying to not, there's some cases where we can't fit it. There there is an uncertainty, but we understand where we need, that gives us an area where we need to go do research. In many ways, this serves two interests. One is it can actually be used as a hypothesis system where you're generating, hey, we need to go do more research in this area. We've actually found errors in papers, believe it or not we find an inconsistency that's significant and people in the paper didn't really discuss uh, maybe it was there when they wrote up the paper for they didn't describe the right conditions on what that was done in just
1: one last thing is the thanks for the explanation but the in building your architecture it seems like you would need to know um, not only the rate constants but the precise quantity of every protein present
0: and that's a big unknown. Yeah, so, so again, so how you, you
1: What assumptions do you make with regards to the quantifiable?
0: Yeah, so one of the, components? yeah, so, so there, you know, so in coupled engineering systems, you have to know, as you're saying, the initial conditions, as plus what the, you know, reaction rate constants are. One of the things that we're capable of doing is we literally can save in the system, different scenarios of what these initial conditions could be. In some cases you do know them where the experiments have been done, and in other cases you don't know them. But the important thing is when you go to a a functional clinical perspective, you know what the ranges of that can be viable. It's not like completely infinite, right? It's not like you're just training on random sets of data. So we can limit those ranges, and one of the things the system allows you to do is you can actually do what's called optimization. After you've built a model, you can say, you know what, I think the ranges are going to be in this. And then you can, you can reverse engineer or run models, and then you can see the results that they actually make sense. But again, I think the key thing I'm saying here is that you actually have a mechanistic understanding on the back end that you can go back to and make rational judgments. It's not perfect, but what else do we have right now? Right now, it's just input-output. We all rely on big data. Where we're just relying on the statistician to help us.
1: Well, it just it calls for more wet wet lab chemistry. Exactly, right? and you can't be totally dismissive of the reductionist approach. No, no, I'm you saying you need you know, reductionism. you need those that quantities. You need those rate constants. Right, reductions. right. And none of this would be possible without the. Yeah, well,
0: the, I, I, the I get. I, yeah, to be clear, what I'm saying is you need reductionism, and you need another type of thing called engineering systems people, because. Um, and you actually value the reductionist person who's doing the lab work now even more. I agree. Right, so in many ways, you you want them to do what they're doing, and then you want to have this engineering systems team or group doing their thing. In many ways, they're feeding them areas that they need help with. And this, I think this synergy can actually drive research in a much more productive way. Because right now, some of the research people may be going to areas where it's either over-research or maybe there's luckily getting into some areas. Yep.
2: Can you use the individual genomic data and plug it into your system to, and then use the deconvolution model to identify the cell type and uh, come up with a target here? Because most of the, if you look into the match trial data, the outcome from genomic research is pretty dismal. Only 8% of the patients are getting benefits. Can you use your
0: system to improve that at an individual level, not at a global level? Yeah, so, so in the NMO case, neuromyelitis optica, by the way, it's a, it's a disease of demyelination of the optic nerve. In this case, while we were doing this project in the middle of it, one of the researchers at USC um, uh, said, hey, you know, can we add genomic data? Because there's variability of the alleles that causes aquaporin. So that's what we did. So they actually had affinity data, and what we were able to do was load that affinity data in and create all different, different scenarios for that and give them values in the system so they could go there search it. So that we actually could create a search space for different gene allele frequencies that they had. And so that's a case where we actually loaded up genomic data. In the Alzheimer's case we're working with Rudy Tanti right now, We've, uh, it's, it's very exciting. We've literally mapped out around 65 of the major molecular systems of Alzheimer's. And in Alzheimer's, genetics becomes extremely important. We have a list of the varying genomic variations, which may be uh, susceptible to not only, like some patients look look like that they get the tangles, uh, the plaques come before the tangles, some people are more affected by neuroinflammation, so we're starting to load that up, but the system can handle genetic variability. We built the system in layers, by the way. So it's sort of plug and play, so you can vary different components in it, um, and so it has this modularity approach in it. Yeah? So you touched on error a little bit already,
3: but if you talk to a bench scientist at Novartis or Lilly or Merck or Pfizer, somebody in the trenches, they'll tell you that 50 to 70% of the stuff that's published, they can't reproduce. Yeah. This is a big problem for pharma because they spend they waste a lot of time and money on pathways and potential targets that really go nowhere it seems to me that the, one of the main advantages of this system is its ability uh, to unmask error in, in a very broad sense so if you have and a lot of these you know a lot of these results this includes things in nature science cell you know a lot of these big papers the big journals right, <coughs> having to deal with uh, stuff that's not reproducible but with a system that takes such a broad view of biology it seems to me that this would be a very easy way to assign a value to some new phenomenon that's coming out in terms of probability that it's correct because you're you're looking across eons of data and publications and what's known about this kinase does this to that kinase and so forth and so have you thought about i know that's not it doesn't make any money but not that that's what you, i don't mean to apply that's what you're doing but it, uh that seems like an application of this that if you're looking to really move the ball down the field uh, that's one of the main areas that, that we get tripped up on is error yeah. not necessarily new discoveries but dealing with stuff
0: that's not right yeah, in fact, it's, it's funny, you mentioned Novartis about a year ago. We had one of the chief scientists at Novartis, and we were working with the foundation, and he was saying, you know, what's powerful about the system is it can actually take advantage of mistakes that have been made. So, one of the, so let me answer your question this way. What we're finding is that, we, having done this now for 13 years, we're, we've actually started uh, building repositories of what I call models, components. So when we start looking at biology, we don't see it as disease-based. We start seeing it as a bunch of, bunch of functional, reusable components. And the more and more we do this, we know, you know what, this component's pretty good. Like, it works. we figured out the errors, and we can reuse it. So for example, parasites, they actually not only show up in the, endothel- you know, in the brain, but they also show up in liver. And it seems like what we're finding is we can literally have a class of models or components That vary under different conditions so in computer science theory they call it you have a class and you have instances of a class and i believe biology evolutionary biology probably dictates this you have a certain set of components and under different conditions they tweak themselves a little bit and so what we're starting to build is these components that we know hey we know this works pretty damn good and these things we don't know that they work that great yet because we don't have enough data so we've started to do that, but it's, it's an area we could start, I think what you're saying is make that open. so people Because what we could also do, I think what you're saying inversely, is take that and say, oh, that came from this body of literature, which we know is reasonably good or is well-saturated, versus this area of literature has a lot of uncertainty still, because it's still virgin or there's a lot of competing interests, etc. We could do that, definitely. Well, we're doing the inverse to take advantage for our own right now. Because we want to basically reuse components so we can plug and play so we don't have to churn through research over and over again. It's a great idea. To follow
1: up on that literature uh, uh, comment you just made, have you ever taken your architecture or taken the literature and just made architecture off of mice and just made architecture off of human samples, human data and
0: looked at them? Yeah, so we we did it in a little bit different way. We haven't done that yet. Uh, we did it with in vitro you know, uh, cells, human cells, and mice. In the alnylam example, um, what we were seeing in vitro was different than we saw in mice. Well, but we were able to understand why. Some of the rate constants of those things varied, and we were literally able to keep the same models. And then we literally had a table of rate constants that varied, and we were able to explain why. Because in the in vitro condition, things were very different than in the you know, actual in vivo model. Um, but we have the capability to do that and I think one of the areas that's going to come up in is is actually in Alzheimer's because people have done some very interesting work in mice and they have some interesting data that's coming from you know human research Uh, but that's an area where we as we start understanding this better our hope is that will also be sort of a modular thing that we can reuse and plug and play same with the osteoarthritis work that we've just started
1: are you finding that the architecture based on of human data is more complex,
0: or less, or is there- Well, I, I don't know if it's the architecture will vary, but it'll be more at the micro-level, the, the gene expression and, the, and the, you know, the rate constant information under the conditions in which certain uh, experiments were done. Yep.
2: So, there are a number of um, studies looking at uh, pharmacodynamic responses to drugs. A number of them are direct, but there's a fair number that are indirect Where the mechanisms that lead to the response are sort of skipped over, if you will. Can you use your information on the the cellular level to explain some of these indirect models and actually piece out what's happening that leads to the, either the lag phases or the indirect activities before you see the response? A secondary question to that is, a number of our drugs have a multiplicity of targets. And the question, of course, is whether or not there is a synergy between certain targets or whether these other things are just epipharmacologic and are leading to some of the toxicities. Could you use your uh, basic pathway integration model at the cellular level and actually have you been able to show? where the actual real targets might be or the, the mechanisms in between the
0: response
2: and the dosing?
0: Yeah, so let me answer the first question. So, you know, in PKPD work, you know, we, I was giving a talk down at the University of Florida. They, they do a systems pharmacology event once a year. And if, another way to look at modeling is that there's, I, I look at it as three tiers of modeling. One is molecular dynamics, where you're looking at protein-protein interactions and you're trying to understand the binding rate energies, you know, not the lump system rate equations that. And, and you know, that's a very difficult problem. You're essentially trying to solve Newton's equation, um, you know, in multiple dimensions. And so, but those people are really trying to understand this integration of the protein-protein. One level above that is a choreography of proteins, which is what we're doing. It's the molecular pathways. And that gives that informs what I call the next level, which is PKPD. PKPD, you know, at the ASCPT conference, if you went there, all those uh, great posters. There's only a few among the 300, 400 posters which went down to the cellular level. Most of it is high level, and then they sort of have a black box arrow going to a cell, and then something coming out. So in many ways, this kind of modeling starts where PKPD ends, and it can inform back to PKPD. So the systems pharmacology guys, they're, right now they're at the PKPD level, and if you go one level below that, you get to this. So absolutely can help there. The other piece relative to your, uh, we're actually working with two pharma companies right now that they're precisely interested in what we're talking about with, an, with a couple of epilepsy drugs that they're looking at, where you have off-target effects going on Um, but they don't know why, and they want to be able to predict that in order to understand side effects. And is it an epiphenomenon, or is it a real phenomenon? It's exactly what we're doing with these two pharma companies. We just started doing that. And it's literally for not only target discovery, but to really understand the effects that are going on on other related targets. I think the key closing comment, if there's any other questions, is I think what we've really done here is create an infrastructure where you can bring researchers in on one hand and literally use it as a framework for dialogue in a much more comprehensive way, but much more honestly, you know, some of the questions you brought up, right? Where are the errors, right? Being basically honest with ourselves, this area is pretty imprecise. We know very little. These areas are quite well known and this is where We need to do a lot more research on it and i think that infrastructure now gives us a basis to sort of move forward and even by the way these ball and stick diagrams in many ways are lump system models so in certain areas if you don't know what they are you could do almost a pkpd high level ball and spring type and shove it in there initially until you sort of get more refined so it doesn't mean you have to stop and i think in engineering that's what we do in engineering we don't it's not about perfection it's about knowing that you are going to get better in version two, version three, version four. But if we can create the framework to do that, and obviously that can essentially inform funding sources, oh, you know what? This area is really well understood, but maybe we should be funding this because if that happens, it can support this kind of model development. So I think we need to recognize that this is really an infrastructure for doing research also, in addition to doing discovery. Thank you. Very much. Thank very you. nice. If you have the individual.